to Bad Law, Worst Facts. I'm your co-host, Michael Takwa. And Jeff McCarthy. Today we have Lena Lorenzo. She is the granddaughter of Nympho Lorenzo's, which is a Mexican restaurant here in Houston that everybody's been at. Jeff, you been there? It is the Mexican. It is the Mexican restaurant. That's right. That's yeah. right. It's it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's amazing. The original one, I just found out. I didn't know where the original one was until recently. I was told it's over there by navigation. And... Um, I really want to go check it out and have, you know, there's something about eating that original food off the original, you know, grill. I'm sure it's been there since it opened. <laughs> what, the grill or the food? I don't know. <laughs> we'll ask Lena. She'll know. So Lena is very special attorney. And here's the reason why. Her first year at a law school, she first chairs, not second, not just emotion. She first chairs a jury verdict comes back with $17.72 million verdict here in Harris County. Plaintiff was Jose Dario Suarez, which I probably messed up. And uh, he drowned during the construction of a pedestrian bridge for uh, Baylor University's football stadium in January 2014. Originally, the family uh, reached out to her old law firm, uh, just trying to figure out what happened. And she helped file a lawsuit and then tried the case. That is kind of a big deal for a first first year attorney, right? I think she was maybe like six weeks, six months out of law school. Wait, so it's at one firm, and then she because I read this bio, and all I could think of was houseway, how like how how is this possible? And it's fascinating. I can't wait to learn. Um, but uh, but yeah, that I mean that's that is incredible. Yeah, uh, definitely made me feel terrible about where I'm at in my career. So thanks to Lena. Yeah. Yeah. My, my first trial um, was, well, I got this on Lena and I'm, I'm going to rub it in her face when she gets on here. My first trial was within two weeks of, of uh, uh, graduating. Yeah. Now I lost that trial. <laughs> so it's a little different now. That was when you were a prosecutor, right? Yeah. Yeah. No one gave a crap about possession of marijuana. Yeah. <laughs> Two ounces in a usable quantity. It was like it was like less than a stamp. What the heck are you gonna do with this? You and you were like, "What are we doing here?" I know. I I, I lost it already. Probably. Lena, how's it going today? I'm doing well. I hope you guys are doing great today. Yeah, I haven't seen you since we both clerked at the 127th, and you've had a pretty outstanding career so far, uh, including a $17.72 million verdict. Is that right? Yeah, thank you, Michael. Yeah, that, that's correct. My very first jury trial, uh, I had been licensed about seven months at that point in time when I got that verdict. Seven months. <laughs> You know, people are looking for that, like, for their whole career. Like, some people just want one of those, and they're like, I'm done. I am done. That was exhausting. I'll never practice again. You do it within seven months of your first yeah. of your first year. I, you know, I get that a lot, you know, <sighs> that lawyers that have been practicing longer than I've been alive saying, I'm so jealous. I've never gotten a verdict like that. And I feel like, well, have I plateaued already? Is it just downhill from here? Where do I, where do I go from here? <laughs> yeah, just all downhill. It's, it's all downhill. Straight up. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why, you know, uh, in the intro, I was telling that, I was like, hey, you know, uh, I tried my first case within two weeks of being licensed. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and I lost. 
Yeah. Very handily. Another <laughs> 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 possession of marijuana game. No one gave a crap about. <laughs> so I got nowhere to go but up. Yeah, it's first thing. So uh, Jeff is not competitive, but he also is a little competitive. So yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, it's within, you know, her first year. He's like, first year? Oh, I did it in two weeks. Yeah, two so weeks. I was like, two well, weeks. hers was a $17.7 million verdict. Yeah. And he goes, Oh. Yeah, mine was. Yeah, uh, well, I, I lost my my. Uh, yeah, mine my was a decision case. I think we're all competitive being in litigation, so it's oh, just yeah. only natural. Where I'm trying to get the next big verdict as well. So, so on this case, but t- t- I'm fascinated by this. T- tell me how this went down. How did it come through your office? Was it you know was it originally you that were on top of it? You know because. I think anybody that would hear that tagline that seven months in, I'm first chairing this, you know, wrongful death and getting nearly $18 million. Like, I think most people say, what went wrong at the firm? Did everybody die? Did all the partners leave? You know, <laughs> so um, I, I mean, obviously you're super skilled at like, you know, but just on, you know, you put that blurb in a piece of paper. So, so could you walk us through how that, just how it came into your office and, and how you got there, you know, before we talk about how great you did on yeah. Absolutely. No, yeah. And and I'm I'm happy to talk about the history because without that history, you never get to the courtroom, right? Um, as we all know, the hard work and uh preparation happens years before you, you ever step into the courtroom before you start taking the jury. So the case was around at the firm before I started working. It was at VB Attorneys uh here in Houston. That was my first job after I passed the bar. And Vuk Vujasinovic is one of the partners there at VB. He's the one that brought in that case. Uh, directly to our firm. He had been working on it very heavily for a couple of years uh, before I even got to the firm. Him and another counsel, Kenneth Fenelon, they they did a great job battling this very complex case with many different defense lawyers, all talented, all uh, going to bat for the respective clients. So there was uh, a very rich history behind this case before I even was, uh, you know, before Vuk ever came up to me saying, hey, I want you to try this case with me. Um, Motions for summary judgment on multiple issues from workers' comp or OSIP issues to maritime issues to chapter 95 issues. I mean, you name it, there was some kind of battle happening in the couple of years leading up to trial. And it was clear that it was going to go to trial. It was reset for trial multiple times before finally we got our March 2016 date. Um, And I was brought on board within a couple of months before trial. I was, I, I give all of the pre-trial credit to Vuk and Kenneth uh, that helped get that case ready. And I basically came in uh, to help with uh, the damages portions of the case. Um, Vuk, I think, consulted other lawyers at our, our firm, realizing that it's a massive case. He's going up against seven, eight different defense teams of, of counsel. And he's a smart, brilliant, hardworking man but I think he realized he needed to, he needed some help uh, shouldering this great weight of a case. And, and, uh, and so I handled the damages portion. So uh, that's how I kind of got brought into it, literally to, to be trial counsel, counsel with him. Yeah. You know, and um, I've never met Vuk, but uh, my last defense gig, there was a, a paralegal that would not stop talking about how great of an attorney that he was. So uh, you know, I feel like you're a pretty good attorney whenever your reputation bleeds down to paralegals and defense firms. Uh, but I think that's a great point that a lot of people don't uh, take into consideration. And this is the spiel that we give uh, all of our clients. The same thing is that we're about to go up against, uh, you'll never outspend 
uh, an insurance company. You'll never outspend, right? You know, they have, they've got a bigger war chest than, than everybody, you know, uh, well, I don't know. And AW, Abraham Watkins might, might make them, give them a run for their money, but still, you know, just the sheer mass of people that they will throw at you. So the beauty of being a plaintiff is teaming up with other qualified, smart, tenacious attorneys, and then joining your forces to get amazing results. So um, good on all y'all to do it. And I think more of that needs to be pushed down to the general public. That's great. Absolutely. I mean, we're only going to be, you know, we all, you can't be a lawyer and be a complete idiot, right? And then trying to be a trial lawyer, you yeah, I mean, we all have we've, we've probably all met that one lawyer that's like, how did you make it through law school? But for me, that's very few and far between. I think everybody has to have some kind of, you know, solid head on their shoulders and a desire to want to do this kind of work. But um, doing the teamwork, absolutely. I mean, that's why it was a huge success for us in, in this particular case. It wasn't just one person. It was um, a shared effort to get that verdict. Yeah. So tell me, you know, you're so... How many months out are, from law school are you whenever they're going to trial on it? So let's see. Are you I, new that you're going to trial, I should say? I guess I had been, I was what, licensed in November 2015. I was told I was going to help try that case in February 2016. So within my three, four months of being at the firm, and then I guess I guess it was closer to six months that I was licensed. Um, and then by March, we're, we're doing all the prep work to start picking the jury on I think it was March twelfth um, that we started that case. It was middle yeah. of March, something like that. Okay, and so uh, how did that happen? They just called you, or they walked in your office, like, "Hey, you know, you're just coming to this trial," and they're like, uh, "Okay." <laughs> oh, I I remember it really clearly. I was sitting in my office and just working on something, you know. And Boot comes into my office, and he's like, "So, you know, um, I have this big case that's going to trial, and uh, I'll." I want you to try it with me. And I had no idea what the case was about. I had no idea how big it was. I had heard whispers throughout the office that there was a big case, that there was a big trial, but I hadn't had the time to really kind of snoop into that file, just have that extra time of being curious about the file and, and seeing what's going on. Cause I was, I was plenty busy myself and it was really that simple. He just said, I, I want you to try this case with me. And I said, hell yeah. You know? And uh, he's like, okay, well, great. Well, we'll, we'll meet on it. And uh We'll, we'll get going on it. And I learned later that he had actually consulted with maybe one or two of the other lawyers at that firm, uh, including Curtis Bickers, great, great man, great lawyer. Uh, Curtis told me after the fact that Luke was like, hey, you know, I'm kind of thinking about asking Lena to help me try this case. What do you think? And Curtis said he kind of sat back and thought about it. And he was like, yes, yes, you should. Um, I never heard the full reasons why Curtis said yes. I was just humbled that he just said yes and helped me get that shot to to try uh, any case, my first case, let alone a, a really big, important, wrongful death complex case like this one. Yeah. So, I mean, you did the damages portion of the case, is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so, Vuk and I split the opening statement. Vuk was on liability uh, throughout the, the throughout the from opening to closing. Uh, taking on most of the witnesses, I handled the damages portion. So I did split the opening statement with him, uh, gave the back end on it. Uh, I even got objected to by one of the counsel because I was broaching the last couple seconds of my time. Um, the jury didn't like that because uh, I, I had basically at that point uh, had discussed the damages early on in the opening and already was having them in tears, basically, and grabbing for tissues. And so they uh, that was obviously not a great start for the defendants. 
Um, He's, he just stands up, objection, this is really, really unfair. <laughs> I don't like this. <laughs> objection, she's doing too good. No, I yeah. had no idea. It, it was really about the time, and I knew that the, I was connecting with the jury. And what was the coolest part was it was a full courtroom. There was news reporters in there. Yeah. Um, one of my old mock trial coaches, actually, uh, Brad Gildy, also a fantastic lawyer, was sitting two rows behind me. And when I'd done, I'm turning around, and he's, like, giving me the thumbs up sign. So I knew I did okay, I, you know. And then during trial, got to handle all of the damages witnesses, which was um, the family members, as well as an expert um, uh, who was basically there to discuss the pain and suffering and experience that, that our primary client uh, who had deceased, what he experienced when he was drowning and before he passed away. Yeah, and so maybe we haven't made it clear here. Can you give us a little bit about the facts or what you can say about the facts about this case? Absolutely. So essentially, this case was about um, a man named Jose Suarez. Uh, and Mr. Suarez was an iron worker, right? He's, he was basically bottom of the chain of command, helping doing iron work on a construction project at Baylor University. They were building the new football stadium as well as the pedestrian bridge that was going over the Brazos River. Um, you ask one person, it's a river. You ask somebody else, it's a creek or a lake or something. But um, in any event, they're, they're building this bridge over the water, and so they're using barges and boom lifts on the water to basically access various portions of the bridge that they're working on as they're building it. Um, and so far into the project, uh, essentially, Mr. Suarez is on one of these barges along with someone else, uh, another subcontractor employee, co-worker of his, that... Um, they were inside of the basket. This was the kind of boom lift, uh, a genie boom lift that could be basically steered when you're inside of the basket of the boom lift. Um, and so he was not operating the boom lift and they're both tied off inside of the basket. Um, and essentially the basket is extended out towards the bridge. We know that the boom lift was also driven to the corner of these square barges that they're not supposed to be driven around on. They're supposed to be chopped on the, the wheels chopped so that it doesn't roll around. Uh, it's supposed to be also chained to the barge. Um, and uh, essentially, while it's at the corner of the barge and the basket is extending out over the water towards the bridge, somehow the, the boom lift just goes into the water. Uh, it was never really made clear how it made, went into the water, whether the operator knocked the a remote control or if finally gravity or the, 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 the tide is what took it into the water, but it did. And it took Mr. Suarez and uh, the other gentleman in there with him. Uh, the operator managed to free himself from the harness. Uh, Mr. Suarez could not. And so he drowned in, uh, I believe it was late January. Uh, so it was very cold water where he, uh, where he drowned with his full equipment on. And so, uh, and they, it took him a while actually to even rescue him from the water. So you had, uh, Baylor University involved. Uh, you had the safety company that they had hired to help supervise the project, as well as the general contractor, which was Austin Commercial. Uh, and then all of these subcontractors, uh, several sub subcontractors, all the way down until my client's employer uh, doing sub subcontracting work. And so um, that's kind of the, the main points of the case. And we were arguing to the jury that there was several safety rules that any one of them could have saved Mr. Suarez's life, whether it was not driving the barges, chalking the wheels and chaining down to the, the barge, uh, tying off inside of the basket uh, when you're working over water. That's, uh, 
as you and I know, and, and lots of plaintiff lawyers know, that if you're doing an OSHA-related uh, case or construction work case, OSHA's involved. And if you're not tied off when you're over six feet, that's just the biggest red flag or, or fact that you hang on to about what's going on and what causes this incident. But when you're working over water, it's a de minimis violation. So um, whether he was required to be tied off and whether him not being tied off, that could have saved his life. Obviously, he would have been able to swim rather than struggling with the harness and, and eventually drowning underneath. Um, and so there was a lot going on in that trial, basically. Yeah. Uh, uh, There's a lot going yeah. on. So uh, w- w- would you say um, that the defense was a liability or a damages defense or a combination? Because sometimes, you know, as I hear you explain those facts and I, you know, I, I literally put myself into your shoes of, man, how difficult and um, you know, like you said, complex it is to pull these strings apart and then, you know, show it to a jury. And then also coming from a you know defense side, you almost have, you know, the best of both worlds where you can argue the liability because you just said earlier, it's not clear how it went in. Okay. Well, so that's an opening for defense. Right. And then of course they always want, and then this ver- this is, this is a for wrongful death. I think a lot of people don't realize wrongful death do not typically go this high. You know, I mean, yeah, I was shocked the first time I heard that, you know, in Harris County, wrongful death between six and $8 million. So I'm like, what? You know, so it's interesting. You know, I'd be interested to know that, you know, when you're on the defense, you got to say something, right. No matter how wrong you are, no matter how it falls. I'm just curious, you know, did they do one, both the combination or, you know, or did they ever just say, yeah, we screwed it up. And, And I'll say this, in my opinion, I, Liability, still pretty tough, but I'm picturing in my head with this boom lift just kind of sitting right next to the river and then just extending them out as much as possible. And you put a picture like that in a juror's mind, they're like, that doesn't seem safe at all, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And your um, the, the primary defenses that were launched was totally against liability. I mean, you're right. Just, just the mechanism of how it went in was a huge topic of questioning throughout trial and a, a big finger pointing game at each and every other person but themselves, right? The more defendants in the case, there's more places to to point the, the blame at or say none of us are at fault. So it was really interesting to see, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's the paper trials of the motions for summary judgment and all those battles that kind of helped shape the case throughout yeah. the throughout the depositions as well. Luke did a great job of, of, of setting up everybody. But at the end of the day, we could tell that we really had a great case against the primary subcontractor um, because of their roles of, of having safety folks there that should have been supervising the work um, and could have caught these kind of unsafe practices of driving the, the boom lifts all around the barge, not chalking the wheels or chaining them down, uh, things like that. Actually, what was incredible, uh, there was almost, there was zero evidence offered against our damages evidence. Um, they, they didn't question us. They didn't question my witnesses, my, my clients, the, the widow and the two adult, uh, children that were president of the United States. The son was in Mexico during the course of trial, but he also got a a verdict award without ever, um, being on the, the stand as I got testimony from the other witnesses about his loss as well as their own. And then of course we actually had a, a renowned, um, pathologist that they also didn't cross-examine for a moment. Um, so it was clear that they thought there's no point in arguing over the loss 
one drowning, that's a horrific way to go. I mean, right. it's, it's, what are you going to argue about with that? And then two, it's horrific to lose a husband slash father. What are you going to do about that? Um, so I think, and because it was a two week long trial, all of the focus was on how do we confuse the juries on who is right, who is, uh, who is at fault and how it wasn't us, right? Talking about each respective defendant. So there was every single liability witness that was called, there was cross-examination. And when you have six different cross-examinations and then re-examinations and crosses, some witnesses would be up there all day long. Um, that was all, that was the battle throughout trial. Well, and you know, it's interesting as you say that I could, I could seriously envision had they attacked your damage model that this would have been a, you know, double verdict because I, I mean, you're right. You know, you have such great facts that, you know, I mean, maybe even weirdly give defense a little bit of credit of knowing if we go down this road with, you know, and obviously the jury likes you, you know, I mean, they're crying at your opening, uh, you know, maybe we back off on challenging the damages and hail Mary this liability and hope they do. Like you said, maybe they put it on the wrong person. Maybe they put it on the shallower pockets yeah. and take the risk. Mm -hmm, and then maybe they could get some type of comp, or, you know, nag something like that where they can reduce their exposure. But um, man, it sounds like you guys really had a case that was did, now, did you anticipate that? Did you think they were going to come after your damages at all? Or were you guys taking a little, were you a little surprised or like, man, they're not even, they're not even going after this at all. You know, I wasn't necessarily surprised that they didn't want to cross examine my clients. They were Spanish speaking primarily. And so having to do an effective cross for the first time with the translator was probably a strategy move as well as maybe, well, what am I going to do? Attack a widow and their children? Um, <laughs> how do, how do I, I mean, I don't care how uh, delicate you are or how artful you are, skilled you are as a trial lawyer. That's a tough, that's a tough, uh, those are tough witnesses. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of better just to get them off the stand and don't give me a chance to get them talking some more about their lovely stories and memories about their father or husband. But yeah, the expert, I actually thought they were going to cross-examine him or at least try to prejudice the jury against him because actually he, like I said, he was a renowned pathologist. He was, um, in a famous criminal case, uh, defending the shooter in a, a renowned uh, uh, criminal case. And I thought they were going to try to bring that up to prejudice the jury. Oh, defends, you know, criminals uh, uh, talking about the uh, particular shooting case. And so I made sure to have a motion to limit me out that they don't go there. And so I actually thought they were going to try to get something out of it. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, with drowning uh, victims and research, there's plenty of it out there. Uh, yeah. It's it's just well known um, in the science that it is painful. It is a burning sensation to be inhaling water and to be fighting for oxygen. And it takes about two minutes for people to essentially lose consciousness. And so I think they had no science to really attack. Uh, if anything, they just felt, you know what, I'm again, not going to keep this professional. I mean, he's a professional witness. Yeah. Let's get him off the stand because uh, during that testimony, the jurors, I mean, we're passing around the tissue boxes left and right, uh, listening to that testimony. So they, was, was, they just wanted to get past it. <laughs> they didn't want to try yeah. that. They were like, we need to get past this. Exactly. You know, I, I, I had, I received a great compliment from one of the defense lawyers about, you know, that, it, that I did a great job. And I, I couldn't believe that I was hearing that in this, you know, after I'm literally still going toe to toe when we're waiting for the jury verdict, he's like, you did a really good job. So 
Yeah, that's great. That's amazing. And you, and, and this is, this is what I got to hear. What was it like, you know, the foreman stands up question one and then they go through it and you just, I, I mean, I mean, what is going through your head? I mean, I mean, I literally just got chills thinking about that moment while, while you're asking me that question, because <laughs> I can still remember my hand shaking as I've got the verdict form and we've gotten past the, you know, the yes, yes, uh, initial questions about liability and getting yeah. to damages. And we had one also a question on, on gross negligence after, but of course it goes the negligence issues and then it goes mm -hmm. to the compensatory damages. Right. Yeah. And the first number I wrote down was 5 million. And when I wrote that one down, I think I blacked out. Like I, I, I know I, <laughs> I, kept, I kept filling out the verdict form and each number had seven digits in them. I think there was one or two where, you know, where it had uh, six figures numbers that I'm writing down, but I, just that first number, I just felt the, the wind rush out of me. My, you know, I, I, I felt like I was floating. Um, and so of course, when the, the numbers came all out and there was a finding of gross negligence against the primary subcontractor that we were focused on, we got two, 2 million punitive damages on top of the, the 15.72, 15.72 was oh. compensatory. Um, uh, which then there's 2 million impunities, which we specifically told the jury, don't give more than two, right? Trying to, trying to cure any appellate issue on that. Uh, and, and they gave us exactly what we asked for on that. And then of course there's just, like a million in interest off, off after all that, but I, I just picture the jury, like, did you really say don't give more, but I already had this number down. Yeah. Like I got to erase it. Now fascinating <laughs> that. What, what did you guys think was going to happen? They were going to give some giant number that they would have no choice, but to appeal. Was that the concern? Yeah. So that, like I mentioned, there was motions for summary judgment, lots of issues going on leading up to it, including an OSIP, an ownership controlled yeah. insurance mm -hmm. program issue, which is basically workers comp um, on steroids kind of right. thing. Yeah. And so th there was even negotiations going on while we're waiting for the verdict about, do we do a high low? What do we do here? Do we entertain these numbers? And, you know, I remember talking with Vuk and trying to think about what we're going to do. And I remember him asking like, what am I asking you for? You're young. Like I felt, I, I don't know. None of us know what's going to happen quite frankly. Um, and of course, while we're still deciding that we, we hear that there's a verdict back. So there was strong positions on the defense that there was comp um, and that that should have limited everything basically about the case. And we, of course, you know, uh, succeeded defeating those motions, knowing that the issue was going to be preserved anyways. But we felt really good about how the case went. And I think my favorite part, I, I really have so many favorite parts about that trial, but my favorite part was afterwards when we polled the jury and they told us they actually wanted to give us more, that there was only a couple of juries that held back on giving more on, on uh, damages. And so when Vuk and I heard that, we we're like, oh my God, we should have asked for more, but <laughs> uh, uh, this is like first world lawyer problems like mm, we can't get too much money or else we'll be in the <laughs> big time first world lawyer problems yeah. that I, I can't believe was all going on down in my very first yeah. trial yeah but i will say this you know in all of our cases and what's so interesting and i'm sure you've well, you know, I don't know. It doesn't sound like you've ever worked on any small cases, but, uh, uh, you know, the small cases where the people are objectively not very injured, right? Those are the ones that you can't see the injuries, right? You can't see the injuries. It's, yeah. it's, you know, and, and 
their sense of what it's worth versus somebody that's lost a loved one who literally says something to the effect of, I don't think, you know, I I don't want a single dollar. I just want questions answered. I want to know why my loved person passed away. And I want somebody to say, I'm sorry. And because you could give me a hundred million dollars. It's not bringing my, you know, my, my loved one back. It's not bringing my brother back. It's not bringing my uncle. It's not bringing my mom back, but I want to sleep at night and, you know, and that's what you gave to these people and probably more than, you know, the monetary value, which will hopefully help, you know, them and their generation, you know, their kids, kids, you know, whatever. But man, there's, you know, peace of mind is priceless. And I, I feel like that's, you know, that's, that's really what you gave them. And that's, that's pretty incredible. I, I got very close, especially with uh, the mother, uh, Raquel, and then her daughter, Raquel, um, and Lucila. They were just wonderful clients. And I mean, it was, hard for them to go through that process but then to have those questions answered I mean you could see the weight coming off their shoulders you could I mean the tears were different there were tears of of not quite happiness because of course they're, they're not quite happy but they're at least they feel justified uh and that closure. all of this time was worth it. exactly that closure was was finally brought to them at least at that moment yeah, yeah. and and so you know as as you were going through this progress you know, process because a lot of this podcast is, you know, we say it's geared towards younger attorneys because I mean, yeah. after you've been practicing a while, you already know everything, but, uh, <laughs> but, but did, did you ever have any doubt creep in? Were you ever like at, you know, 1am, you know, going over some files and be like, what am I really doing this? Like, can I really do this? Or was it just so like roller coaster? Uh, because I've been in that situation before too, where you're going so fast that you look back, like I didn't, I didn't even blink because I, I, I couldn't, you know, versus halfway through being like, man, I'm really questioning every life decision. Can I change my name and move to Mexico? You know I mean? uh, did, you, did you have either of those thoughts, you know, anything like that? You know, I was, I was ready to go. You know, once I was tasked or, or told that I was going to try that case with him, um, I went straight to work. I didn't have a moment's hesitation. And I think it's just because of the, my mock trial and moot court advocacy background. Like I, I know how to put together a direct and a cross examination. I know how to do an opening. I know how to talk in front of strangers on my feet and not completely look like an idiot. At least that's what I thought. Um, and so maybe, you know, especially the night before the, the when we're picking the jury and uh, before opening statements, you know, I think I had the least amount of sleep that night because I wanted to get it right. I, I, I really wanted to get the damages portion uh, accurate, uh, not just, you know, exaggerate or, or say, you know, something that's too abstract about the loss of the father, something tangible and real, because as, as plaintiff lawyers know, that opening statement really dictates the tone for the entire case. It, 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 it's it's really you think that most jurors have their minds made up at that point. Um, And so I think that was one of the most, um, I spent a little less time sleeping that night before planning that opening to make sure it was extra tight. Um, But I was, once it was going, I mean, it's, I didn't blink just, just like you were saying, Jeff, it's, you you just keep going and and keep working and and take one day at a time. and, And there wasn't any time to hesitate um, if anything, you're double checking things or making sure that everything's uh, can that can be done during the course of trial is being done. Uh, you know what's best for the case and for the client. Um, so that's luckily that experience confirmed I'm in the right business. 
So tell me a little bit about now. I mean, are you are you ever scared to go to a trial on any case? You, you know, I'm scared to go to tr- trial on a case at Barn, except for this one, on a case that maybe gets handed to me that I didn't work up, that I don't know, you know, that I haven't been with a client through the deposition. Um, my second trial was one of those types of trials, actually. I was so nervous because I didn't have that same relationship with my clients. I was, um, and I still won that trial. Uh, I still got a verdict for my clients. And it was, I don't know if it's because the defendant never showed. I mean, it was soft tissue, you know, less than 6,000 in medicals per client. Um, I mean, it was a, about as opposite of a case as you can get. So I was nervous about that case. Um, just because it was my first one, I wasn't co-chairing with anybody. I didn't, I had to memorize and learn that case pretty quickly, you know, within uh, the month before that trial uh, and still got a good result. But I, I felt off on that one because I didn't have that case as long as I wanted. Um, but uh, it, it just, usually when I have a case from the beginning, I feel a lot better about it because I know I'm always, no matter what I'm prepping on or working on for a case, I have trial in the back of my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to literally be a trial lawyer from the beginning of case until the very end, because I think that's the best way, especially as younger lawyers, that's the only way we should be thinking is that, look, people aren't going to take us seriously. They're not going to just hand over settlements just because you're pounding your chest and you demand money. You have to actually put in the work and show them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seriously kick your ass at trial because <laughs> I've done the work. Uh, leading up to that point. And so um, I get the excitement. I definitely get the butterflies and excitement because I think it's exciting to go to trial um, and because it, you never know exactly what's going to happen 100%. But um, I, it's a good kind of nervous. I, I get excited. I, I love the irony there. That, and, 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 I have to, and I have to, you know, piggyback off that and, and say the same thing because I was most nervous trying cases against pro se plaintiffs when I was on the defense, you know, cause I thought, you know, and I had a great winning streak, you know, when I was doing that or, or even pro se when I was at the prosecutor, cause I thought, well, if I lose this, you know, I can't go back to the office. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I mean, you can't lose to a pro se. And, and then the same thing, you're like, you get this, you get this, you know, at, at Allstate, I had cases, I had a case dumped on me where there was a, 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 a panel, sitting outside the courtroom and there's, they were like, where are you? Where am I? I'm in the office. You called me, <laughs> oh Judge. My. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Hey, by the way, when a judge says, where are you? Don't ever respond with, I'm in my office. You called me. <laughs> <laughs> Not good. Uh, uh, but yeah. But yeah. That's yeah that's, I had to hop in the car and I had to hear about the case as I'm driving to trial. Yeah. So that was a rough point. I mean, I, I mean, I still got a no negligence, just saying, but no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. But that wasn't because I didn't. That wasn't that wasn't my doing. That was uh, um, uh, clients' issues. But anyway, but yeah, I, I find that fascinating. That you know, the big ones were so prepared for it, but then the little ones where, you know, you don't you don't get every that. The, but I think that speaks to you as a professional because you want to you want to do it right. You know, you every yeah. time. You know. Absolutely. You know, I was a plaintiff myself once and, and uh, I was hit by a drunk driver when I was 21. And so that was kind of an introduction into personal injury law. I never actually planned to go to law school until that kind of happened and, and a few other things that helped put me on the track to law school. But, um, but I com- completely agree that, that those little ones, they can really define you, quite frankly. 
Yeah. So, so what is what is some of the advice you might you might give to a younger associate that maybe is um, uh, you know maybe would be in the same position as you to have those opportunities? You know, you know, how do you make yourself? How do you think you made yourself that person that they thought of? Do you know what I'm saying? Because there, there's other office, there's other attorneys in your office, and how did they say? You know what? Lena, that's who we're going yeah. with. And, and, it, and, you know, you had to have done little things up until that point. And, and is there anything maybe you could point to and say, you know, I'm glad I did this because this is how, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. I, you know, I think, it, again, it was my training in law school that if, if any young associate that they didn't do advocacy in law school, go to a trial school, go actually learn those skills because that's what you need to be in a courtroom. You can know the facts and you can talk well, but if you don't know how to object or how to preserve error, you're, you're asking for malpractice, let alone lots of sleepless nights and maybe getting fired by your boss because you didn't prepare yourself on how to, you know, act in the courtroom and actually do your job. Um, I think, and this is pure speculation. I think Vuk thought of me because of my background because perhaps I was a female that could have that touch with our clients, right? We had primarily three female clients that were going to be there at trial. Um, I'm, I think there's plenty of male advocates that can have that touch, that, uh, that empathetic ability to coax a story out of a client naturally that's believable, that doesn't seem rehearsed. Um, I think women attorneys can have that extra those extra skills and assets to be motherly or sisterly and just kind of be able to gingerly talk about difficult things. And it doesn't come off as abrasive. Luke is super, uh, super talented. Um, but I think he recognized that he's got his limits perhaps on being able to handle damages, not just the caseload, but perhaps being, I know he can be empathetic and, and sincere, but I think he saw that in me is that one, I had the training two I could be that female touch to the courtroom. I was, I think the only female lawyer in that entire courtroom, if I'm not mistaken, uh, out of 20 lawyers that were there, um, aside from an appellate lawyer that was also a female. Um, so it was an interesting change of pace, probably for the jurors to yeah. hear from a, a female uh, and a female uh, kind of voice a bunch of male voices that are shouting objection and, and arguing back and forth, <laughs> you know, it, who knows if that was part of his, I, I would love to ask Book, you know, exactly why he picked me. But if I had to guess, those would be my, the things that I think he saw in me and remembered about me that, okay, let's, let's give Lena a try. All right, well, we're going to do a follow-up with Vuk. We'll yeah, so and then you can listen. <laughs> like a surprise guest out of nowhere, right? Guess who we have on the line right now? No, I, I think I was so surprised he asked me that I just said yes and didn't ask why. I was like, what do I do? You know, what do I do next? Let's get started. I think what it sounds like is that you are self-aware of what you bring to the table yeah. and you lean into it. And, and I, I feel like that's what the very best trial attorneys do. The ones that are, if, if someone's a jerk, just be a jerk. I've, I, you know, the, the blessing I had of working so much on the defense was that I got to see so many plaintiffs try cases, plaintiff attorneys, and saw all their styles. And I can emphatically say across the board, those that did very well were they were true to themselves. If you're a jerk, be a jerk. If you're a nice guy, be a nice guy. But when the nice guy tried to be mean or the mean guy tried to be nice, nobody believed them. And it's just none. And even though I thought, man, that guy is being such an ass, 
later I found out that, man, that really resonated with the jury because it's, it's just genuine, you know? Absolutely. I, I absolutely think you're, you're spot on with that, that it, if you have your strengths and you know what they are, use them. Um, but don't be afraid to acknowledge you might not be an all around, you might not have everything that, uh, that is needed for that particular case. Um, so. Yeah, we all have a particular set of skills. And I, I think, I think my strength is leaning on the softer side because as female attorneys, we have to toe the line between being too soft and being a bitch. Right. I mean, right. we, we have extra standards against us. And I mean, I, I literally use that word because that is what gets yeah. perceived about women who are, you know, yelling or screaming. And I, you know, um, I have gotten that feedback that it's not a good look for me to be yeah. towing that, that bitch line versus the yeah. somewhere in the middle where you can be firm um, as well as uh, delicate where you need to be. You never get a man saying that to another man, though, no. right? You'll never have like, oh, you're just you're just being too loud and, and mean. Yeah, you know, I'm like, so mean, Mike. <laughs> such a meanie. <laughs> oh, you didn't you didn't call me out one time, but oh, yeah, that was that. that was an accident. Oh yeah, what? Yeah, <laughs> oh, man. I'll tell you about that. We'll tell you about that one off. The yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you're exactly right. You know, that's it, whether it, people want to accept it or not. Women lawyers have that issue. They do. You know and. I don't know how to deal with it as a male. I really don't know what to tell you guys. I really don't, yeah. but you guys do. One of the shout out to one of the very best trial attorneys out there. She's uh, sadly still in the defense, but Rachel, <laughs> Rachel, Hand, me and her worked together and we had this, you know, this system down where she would in pretrial be awful, just nitpicky, condescending and every older 50 plus white male plaintiff attorney would lose their mind just lose it and then <laughs> opening statements fire up and he's still so mad at it and then i would come up and i'm just you know i'm a super nice guy so then you had this you know angry old guy this super you know much more pleasant younger male attorney and a and a and, a, and then as soon as the jury came in rachel turned it around totally and she was so sweet and that would make him even angrier. <laughs> like, you don't understand how difficult she was in pretrial. She argued everything like it was, you know. And we we're like, yeah, man, that's our stick. You know, we're trying to get you angry, throw you off your game. And um, I, I always thought that was so smart of her to know exactly what she brought to the table. Because you know what that attorney's saying yeah. to the emails within his firm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he's he's using every word that she wants him she wants him to use, you know, in in the courtroom. Yeah. To be honest with you. But I'm gl yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you said that, Lena, because I feel like more you know we're talking about the reality of trying cases, yeah. and and I think the reality of it is knowing your strengths, weaknesses, and honing honing them, you know, to to. to the... But I mean, how do you deal with that personally? Yeah. You know, how do you how do you deal with opposing counsel? I mean, honestly, undermining your capabilities because you're young and a woman. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it obviously depends on the counsel I'm going up against. I love hearing that story about Rachel Hancock because um, that's great, right? She's using her strengths to, you know, her, for her case and for her clients. Um, I try to do that same thing where if I feel like, uh, especially when I have my maritime cases, you know, I've got my Jones Act clients that are roughnecks or they're yeah. super ultra, you know, male right oriented and they see me come into the the, the deposition room uh and i'm just this you know i'm not the smallest little girl right I, or lady i guess 
I'm, you know, I'm five, seven, but I'm a little Hispanic woman uh, with a, a, a kind of a lighter voice, I guess. Um, and so I get either people, and that's just with witnesses, right? With witnesses will treat me differently, let alone defense counsel. I don't, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a deposition room and they ask, are you the court reporter? Still to this day, it doesn't matter if I'm wearing a suit. It, it's, it's incredible how there's just this um, mentality, especially amongst older generation lawyers. That's like, if you're a female in this room, it's because you're taking my notes, right? You're, you're, you're not here to do uh, any work. Uh, and so when I have a lawyer that I can tell uh, things sees better than me, just simply because of how I look and how he looks, um, I always challenge them instantly. The first objection I get, I ask for what the basis is, because I want them to understand, hey, I can call you out too. Uh, I'm going to call out your sidebars. I'm going to call out your, your lame objections and tell you they're not good. I will be tough with you in a deposition because guess what? The jury's not going to see that. They're not going to see me. They're not going to see me fighting with this lawyer and calling them out for being rude to me, condescending to me. Um, just this past fall, I had repeated incidents with a lawyer. Uh, luckily, we got the case resolved uh, in a professional manner. But during depositions, he would straight up yell at me. I, and I, there's nothing I can think of except that I was a younger female lawyer that he thought he could get away with that. Because then my boss, uh, one of my bosses, Benny Augusta Jr., when he tags on to a different deposition, totally different lawyer is on the opposite end of that deposition, totally different. Um, and so I don't back down when they challenge me. And I, uh, I am equally as cooperative and nice when, I, when they recognize, hey, being tough or being a jerk isn't going to get anything done with this lawyer. If, I, if we can just talk like lawyer to lawyer, um, we can get things done uh, in, a, in a professional manner. So, you know, I usually can get that read on lawyers within the first phone call on a case when we're in, they're introducing themselves or I'm introducing myself. I've had lawyers just cut me off because they think they're running the show. But it's getting a little less in the, in the, within the last couple of years. Uh, and I have no idea if that's just because I'm getting better defense counsel that are more professional. Um, that could be just the luck I'm having lately. But I expect to have this issue for the rest of my career where people are going to treat me differently simply because I'm a female, let alone right now I'm a younger female lawyer. You know, I, I'd like to hope and think that it's a little bit of the tide changing. And especially after we've all kind of gone through COVID and some other stuff and, and we start to realize, you know, we're just a... We're just all humans here trying to figure it out. But, you know, uh, you know, I know this wasn't the, the uh, focus of this podcast, but I'm so glad we're talking about it, you know, and it makes me think about like when I'm driving down the road and then someone cuts me off and they honk and flip me off. And I, and I think, man, don't get mad at me because you bought a Kia. It's not my fault. You know, <laughs> you know don't, don't, don't lump all your bad life decisions onto me on, on, on I-10, you know, uh, and, and, you know, nothing against Kia. It's a very nice car. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> They're not sponsoring us. Yeah, anymore, shout out for the sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think I'm sponsoring my favorite part besides, obviously, the uh, the value of what you said is you just went super country when you said taking my notes. Taking my notes. <laughs> and and, and total, I've totally had to do that with, with certain lawyers where, I like, my Texas accent really comes out heavier just because I feel like it's somehow going to make yeah. me more understandable to them. Uh, it just, but sometimes, you know, my wife says it comes out every now and then she's from Minnesota. So I, I think she's just teasing me that I always have an accent, <laughs> but, uh, sometimes it helps just to play it up a little bit. 
Minnesota's got their their accent. Oh. It's the, a the Fargo type, you know. <laughs> don't you know up don't there you? in Minnesota? You know. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! You betcha! Yeah. You betcha! You betcha! By golly! Up there <laughs> Oh, a quick, a quick uh, Minnesota off-roading story. I spent some time doing a little bit of work up there, and uh, their downtown has uh, an intricate above ground, like this uh, skyway system. Because it's so cold, you can't go. We, you cannot walk outside on some days. Like it's it's so bananas. They're like, no, you'll just die. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, first time I went there it was negative forty. Oh, what? Yeah, that's real. Yeah, that's a real thing, man. Why? Why did we live there? I don't know. <laughs> uh, there was also 300 car crashes by 8 a.m. that morning when I'm watching the news. So, oh, man, I'm gonna go get some dual license. Oh, you know, what, are their limit? what are their limits? What are their minimums? Just <laughs> plaintiff lawyer. That's the same thing I was thinking. I was like, how many claims just happened just in the past two hours? <laughs> how quickly can I take this point? <laughs> how how warped is our mind that that's all I think about? All that like uh, I was talking to this one attorney who said he's moving to Hawaii and he said yeah there's there's no caps uh, on suing the state I was like oh no you know I mean people fall into volcanoes you, you can get come on <laughs> real that's a thing <laughs> it, it being a lawyer it changes how you think and being a plaintiff's lawyer especially it changes how you think because you have to think in business terms amongst this very human yeah. experience right someone's been injured or lost and you think okay the law says compensation is pretty much all we can do in this situation how do we make the most of that for them? Yeah, I, I felt it the most when I watched uh, my cousin Vinny after law school on the plaintiff attorney and the, the guy who has a, a neck brace. He's like, you fall at work? He's like, no, I don't know. He's like, what? I forgot what the exact quote was. He's like, you're stupid. It just walks away from him. And it's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so, Lena, one last thing. So we do two things, two questions for every guest. First is, you know, if you can give one piece of advice to young attorneys, what would it be? Uh, if you're a young attorney and you want to be in a courtroom, you have to dedicate you have to dedicate your time, your education, uh, and your energy to it. And how you do that, there's so many ways you can do it. That's the greatest part is there's not one perfect way to do it. You can read the books, you can go to trial schools, you can get mentored by those lawyers that know more than you. Um, everything I have learned has been from it has not been accidental, right? No one just wakes up and there's suddenly a trial lawyer with zero effort. So if you want to do this kind of work, you have to be prepared to put in the work um, using your strengths. And, uh, you know, I always tell lawyers when they're thinking about going to law school, ask yourself why, what is it that you actually want to do? Um, I hope you're not just thinking that's what my parents do, so that's what I'm gonna do or it looks like kind of fun on TV or, or whatever the case, you have to actually understand the reality of practicing law. Um, and for me, that reality was being in a courtroom um, and fighting for the rights of people. That's what I knew I wanted to do as being a former plaintiff myself. So you, if you wanna be in this business, young lawyers, put in the work because you want to, because you know that you can do this and wake up and get excited about it because there's, there's too much work and there's too much at stake just to half-ass it. Absolutely. Uh, second question is one that's a little bit more lighthearted, and that is, what is one embarrassing thing either you have done or you've seen someone do at trial? Oh, man. An embarrassing thing that I have done or seen at trial. 
The most embarrassing thing I did at trial is something that only I saw uh, and heard from a juror after uh, a couple of trials back. I had a couple of, I had a trial my first year uh, at being at this firm, Abraham Watkins, and I let my frustration get the best of me. I was going to trial against someone who was a former judge and uh, there was a new judge on the bench and I just wasn't happy with the way things were going. Um, it was a tough case, liability on I was a side swipe case. Um, and essentially uh, there was objections going on and we were conferencing constantly uh, away from the jury box. And there was one time when I got up to go with this bench conference and I couldn't help but kind of let a, you know, God, like kind of show a little grimace on my face that I was just, God, I can't believe we're doing this, you know, something under my breath that small. And when I pulled the jurors afterwards, they said, we really didn't like it when you showed that you were not happy with the objection, what was going on. And so me thinking, how could the focus ever be on me in that moment? Because there's other stuff going on there. The camera, the, the spotlight, the focus, attention is still always on you as a lawyer, no matter what. So I was super embarrassed because that feedback was given to me. Um, the judge had a bunch of uh, law clerks and students in the courtroom that got to hear that critique. Uh, so did defense counsel got to hear that critique. And so it was embarrassing for me, but it was an, and we had already lost at that point. We lost on liability on that case. They so just said it was no, no negligence. And so um, I was already upset that it, I didn't win that trial. But then to hear, oh, by the way, we didn't like that two seconds of you showing your emotions. Uh, it was very embarrassing that I didn't keep control over myself every second of that trial. And that's what it is to be a trial lawyer. And that's why I keep repeating about going to get training or, or go watch trials and see how it's supposed to be done. Because um, once you're in that courtroom, it's, it's, you can't just do anything off the cuff. It has to be planned, premeditated in terms of presenting your case, but then how you carry yourself, the, the jurors, jurors are staring at you. And if you give them anything to not like, they will not forget it. Uh, yeah, that's, that's and I actually, great advice I'm wrapped in a funny story. story. Yeah, but I'll tell you that yeah. uh, it's it's a good sign. I mean, you lost and you're like, oh, whatever, you're on to the next thing. That's that's a good sign for young attorneys as well too, because you're going to lose cases. You're going to, it's, it's inevitable for all of us. And it's okay. You just learn yeah. from it. From there, all you do is learn. Like, oh, I probably shouldn't. I should have a little bit more control over myself. A uh, little pro tip of myself. It's not really a pro tip. It's actually terrible. But I actually pinch myself when I start getting pretty mad. And I've been in a few situations where I'll like pull up my, um, I'll pinch my leg because I'm just thinking about the pain. So my face is okay. And because uh, I've, I'm very expressive with my face. And after I think, I don't know, it was hearing or something. I remember I like, you know, went home and I looked, I was bleeding so badly. Oh my and I God. was like, well, at least I kept a straight face. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I probably done, should have done something like that too. <laughs> <laughs> Lena, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me guys. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks.